0: This is Eric Bradlow talking to you for Wharton Moneyball. Over the next half hour or so, we're going to to be talking to Craig O'Shaughnessy from Brain Game Tennis, hear who he says is in the top tier, the top floor of the penthouses, he says, in the women's game, and who's there in the men's game, and hear how he thinks about the probability of Djokovic and or Alcaraz winning the U.S. Open. So hopefully you enjoy this segment here on Wharton Moneyball. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business intersect and collide. My name's Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. I'm joined this week by my friend, nine-and-a-half-year co-host, 20-plus-year colleague here at the Wharton School, Adi Weiner. Some combination of the two of us, Cade Massey and Shane Jensen, are here every week, here on XM, the podcast edition, the on-air edition, here on Morton Moneyball. We're happy to have back Craig O'Shaughnessy. Uh, Craig is widely recognized as one of the world's leader in teaching and analyzing tennis strategy. Um, he created Brain Game Tennis. For those interested, you can go to braingametennis.com. Uh, Craig has also held various coaching roles, including spending time with Team Djokovic, which we'll want to talk to him about. But Craig, Craig, uh, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball.
1: It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you guys again. It's that time of year.
0: It's that time. It's absolutely that time of year. So why don't we just start with an overview of,
1: yes.
0: you know, we've talked to you every year, I think the last four or five years. Where is the state of analytics in tennis today more broadly? Let, we'll get to individual players, how they're doing, how they might be using it. But let's talk about just how analytical are the teams that are surrounding players? Where is the state of analytics today?
1: Yeah, it's definitely improving. There's a lot of teams that are now looking at data to get information about the opponents. I think that that's where it's going down that road a little bit more than looking at themselves, which which also needs to happen. But um, it, it's very rare these days that a player is going to go into a match and not Understand the serve tendencies the the patterns uh early in the point about their opponent there's only one guy that I've ever sat down with It was Nikolai Davidenko. You may remember him i do a, Ru- a Russian player who was unbelievable, but I remember having lunch with him once and and i I started to talk to him like, well, I do analytics and statistics and strategy, and I was you know kind of happy with myself and uh and and nikolai goes yeah well i I don't even want to know who I play and I don't want to know what they do. I'm just going to go out there and play my game. And I sat, my joy hit the floor, and I sat there and and, and had a wonderful conversation with him. But he's literally been the only guy in two decades that that I've spoken to that does it that way. Everybody else now, um, you're searching for the information. You, You leave no stone unturned. You want to know where the forehand and the backhand breaks down. You want to know which side to attack. Uh, you want to know the favorite passing shot, and, and and all of these things. So that information is spilling into our sport more now than it ever has. So I would say that the state of analytics currently is is very much focused on opponent analysis.
0: Well, that's what I was. So let me. That was a. Per, this is one of those perfect softball segues to my follow up <laughs> question, which is, if you had to say, you know, I always I'm always known on here on Morton Moneyball. This is. I'm Eric Bradlow's the effect size guy, which means. If, given everyone's only gotten a certain amount of time in the day, if you were coaching a player today, would you have her or him focus more on, let's call it, their own analytics or their analytics of their opponent? And which do you think of the two is actually more impactful in terms of increasing the odds of winning?
1: I'll tell you a quick story. When I first started working with Novak Djokovic in 2017, uh, we met at the Australian Open to kick off. We sat down. Murray he's his full-time coach, his long-time coach, was yep. there. Novak was sitting there. And, you know, I'm as nervous as hell to, for the first time chatting with these guys and a little bit of small talk, how's the kids, yada, yada. And then, you know, I said, Novak, how can I best help you? And he goes, Craig, there's three ways. And he goes, the first thing is, and he's he's number two in the world at the time. Um, it's it spent it already won eleven slams. It spent a long, a long time at number one, but he was too ranked two then. And the first thing he said to me was that I want you to analyze my game. I know there's things that I'm doing out there on the court that I could do better. I know there's patterns that I think are right, but they probably aren't. So the first thing is figure me out, understand what I'm doing wrong and right, and let's improve me first. So mm-hmm. that kind of goes to answer your question. Secondly, um, was certainly, he said, I want to have a game plan for every match that I play. I want to know about the opponents. Sometimes I'm playing somebody for the first time. Sometimes I haven't played that person in a while. Sometimes that person has jumped in the rankings and they're playing differently. So I want that information about the opponents. And then the third thing was, there's these other two guys that, are, that regularly turn up against me on a Sunday and <laughs> we need to know more about them than they know about us. But it was interesting to know that the first thing that Novak wanted was more information about himself. So I think that kind of answers the question right there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Let me ask you a question. Um, Besides the, let's call it on court part of analytics, one could easily imagine a situation where one uses analytics for something you care deeply about, which is training. Could you talk about all the ways, if there are any, that analytics is used? Prior to someone stepping on the court, because we've talked about this all the time. I mean, Adi's done work on sleep patterns. There's work on tra- on diet. There's work on you know training regimen. You know, I'll call it time off, time on. Can you talk about all the off court stuff where analytics may be able to support a player?
1: The old way, uh, the old relationship between the practice court and the match court started with the practice court. You would go there, you would hit balls, you would stand on the baseline. You know, you'd hit for an hour across court. You'd hit 700 forehands, and you thought you were getting better. Then you go to the match court, and you hope what you worked on um, sticks, and you, you hope that it helps you win matches. Now we go to the match court first. We look at the analytics. We see where we're strong. We see where we're weak. And essentially, a tennis match, you know, kind of looks random. It looks like a game of pinball with a the ball careening around. Sometimes you know players go down the line. Sometimes they go cross. All of a sudden they pop up at the net. It's not. It's a game of repeatable patterns, and those patterns are short. About seventy percent of all points are in zero through four. So yeah. what is now what is now happening on the practice court is that you are looking for short sequences of shots, uh, repeatable patterns such as a serve out wide in the juice court, followed up by a forehand approach. To the wide open ad court. And what you're wanting to do on the practice court now is take these little derivatives of the match, these little shot sequences of two, three, and four shots, and you take those to the practice court and you practice them religiously. So you're actually getting better at the patterns instead of just going to the practice court and banging balls around for an hour. I
0: I love it because I've always wondered that as well. And and you just reinforce that, Craig, which is, You know, even if you're playing Novak Djokovic, what I would many would consider the greatest returner of all time. I mean, there's other people you could put in that set, but he's in everybody's top five. If conceptually you could hit a five-inch square on the outside edge on the on the, deuce co- on the ad court, serve him out wide, and then follow up with a forehand to the open court. I'm not saying you're beating Djokovic, but if you could do that every single time, you'd at least have a chance. So I love this idea of, you mentioned half a dozen, but like have a half a dozen, two or three shot patterns, get really good at those, and doesn't your game just have
1: to improve? Well, it does. and And the key here is that you're planning. You have an idea of how the point wants to go. And I've worked a lot with juniors about this. Typically, a junior is going to go up to the line and not really, you know, maybe they think about where the serve's going, but not really where they want the ball to come back, not really thinking about does my serve plus one need to be a forehand or a backhand, where do I need to attack? So I I experimented a lot about a decade ago, standing on the court behind these juniors, asking them, how do you want this point to play out? Where do you want to be? Um, at the start of the point and and what shot do you want to have at the end and it's amazing how often the point will play out how it's planned and even if it doesn't play out exactly the chance of you winning the point rises simply because you have a plan in your mind
0: hmm let me ask you now about the state of the game of tennis right now let me first start with what i call i'll call it uh, in a good way, the more complicated side, which is the women's m- tennis today. I see at least, maybe you've got a different number. I see at least half a dozen people that are probably competitive in most majors today. I mean, in my view, obviously, Iga Swantek, who's the number one player in the world, Sabalenka, Rybikina, you'd have to put Coco Gauff in that set right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd, I don't know, maybe you'd have to put I mean, it wouldn't be a surprise to me. I mean, Muchova could certainly win a major. Yeah. or could possibly win a major. Von Drusova just won a major. I mean, yes. it, you know, if she got on a run, Soccery, not in this tournament, she's already out, but Soccery or Madison Keys. So, I mean, mm-hmm. let's talk about the women's side. Why do you think there's so much, I don't want to call it parody, because Switek, I mean, mm-hmm. there's two or three that appear to be better than the rest or have done better. But why are there so many competitive women in the game today?
1: Everything goes in cycles and waves. And, you know, we see it in the men's game. We see it in the women's game. Um, you know, you basically mentioned most of the girls in the top ten. Jabur is there. Rebecca is also there. Um, Pagula is at three. So I think it's a very exciting time. I look at this top ten and think, okay, Sviatek is certainly a cut above. There is, there is no question she's on a floor in the building that's at the top. She's in the penthouse. There's nobody else up there. But not by far. Sabalenka on a day can can take her out and a lot of these other players in the top ten. I think it's a, a really good time uh, for women's tennis. And I like the game styles. I like the players that are there. Uh, you mentioned Michova. I watched her at uh, in Rome this year where she had a, a gutsy three-set victory over Trevisan. Um, I was on court Petra and was uh, I worked with the Italian Federation, so I was sitting front and center, and I was, I was just watching the children. I'm like, you can play. You've got a really good head on your shoulders. You're yep. mixing and serving volley. Um, your, your forehand's got great shape. Your backhand solid as a rock. You will go to the net as, as, as much as you need to. Um, you know, they're very much an all-court player. So if she's sitting around 10 in the world at the moment, um, that, that speaks to a very healthy women's game. So I, I think the women have nothing... Um, nothing but an upside at the moment and, and the players that are there and the personalities that, that are there, I really, really like. So I think the WTA is in a very good position right now.
0: I, I agree. And by the way, I love watching the women's game. Maybe I could argue in some ways, although that we'll get to the men's side in a second, that Djokovic Alcaraz match, I think it was in Cincinnati, was one of the yes. greatest matches I've ever seen. So we'll, I want to get to that in a second. But so as you project out as someone that knows the game of tennis better than anybody, I always say, you let's forget about the intercept in a, in a model, which is where people are today. As you project out two to three years from now, who has the greatest ability to improve? And how do you think and determine that? Like, who's not even yet, in your view, SwanTech is great. There are, these are all great players in the top 10. But who's got another, I'll use your terms, uh, Craig, who's got another level in the high-rise building that they can get to?
1: I think Coco Goff. I, I think sometimes, you know, the serve can get a little wild, the forehand can get a little wild, the back, backhand generally solid. Um, but I think she can tighten things up. Um, I remember, you know, I always go back to this. I, I was studying Andre Agassi in 2000 at the Australian Open. He beats Evgeny Kafelnikov in four sets in the final. They interview him and they're talking about why why Andre did so well. And they put a point on and he's like, yeah, you moves really well around the court. He likes the ball up high. Um, He only pulls the trigger one time in the point. And uh, you know, that really resonated with me. So, you know what? um, I I just actually had a a chat with Ben Shelton's dad, who's now coaching him. Mm -hmm. Uh, I watched Ben at uh, at Wimbledon. I watched him. um, uh, I watched him here at the U S open. And that's what I told him. I said, Ben, it just needs to go one point deeper in the rally, not pull the trigger quite as much. Take that quote from Andre Agassi and say, Is this the really the right ball to go for? No, not yet. And and just go one more shot at one more shot deeper into the rally. And and that's really probably the number one thing that Ben Shelton needs. And circling back to the women, it's the one more thing that Coco Goff needs as well. Just finding the right ball to pull the trigger. It's almost like being in a poker game. It's like, okay, I've got my two aces. Now I can do whatever I want. But until you have that, just, just go deep with one more ball. Go behind with one more ball. Hit one more ball with better court position and don't make that error. Don't be in a rush to make that error and all of a sudden your game will blossom and opponents opponents are now going to be pressing too hard and making that error instead of you.
0: Just two quick comments on that, uh, Craig. And again, we're talking to Craig O'Shaughnessy. Uh, Craig is rightly recognized as one of the world's leaders in teaching and analyzing tennis, uh, for those that want to learn more, uh, you can go to BraingameTennis.com. And again, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with Adi Weiner. Uh, some combination of us, uh, Shane Jensen and Cade Massey here every week here on Wharton Moneyball. It's interesting, just two comments on that. You obviously picked Andre Agassi. Now, obviously, um, Brad Gilbert played a big role in Andre Agassi's career, and he's now recently joined the Coco Golf team. So my first comment and question to you is, how much role does an instructor like a Brad Gilbert have on the potential of a player like Coco Goff?
1: Yeah, I think it's a brilliant move. Brad's got so much experience from coaching Andre and from coaching you know, other players as well. He spent some time with Andy Murray, spent some time with uh, Andy Roddick, and, and other players as well. So what Brad's going to do is he's going to very much talk about the patterns of play. He's going to talk about the strategy. He's going to talk about the mind. It's not about, you know, the practice court as much. It's about analyzing matches and analyzing matchup matchups. Brad was a master at figuring out the opponent and plugging in that game style. And you know, trying to play Andre Agassi back in the day, you know, around two thousand, you know, when he was when he was at the heights of his game, it was so difficult. I actually formed one of my early presentations where he beat Scott Draper in the final of Washington by playing cross court in the in the juice court to Scott's back end Scott was a lefty then the round of 16 at the Australian Open in 2000 against Philosisis by going through the ad court now to the back end and then beating Kofelnikov in that final going side to side so Andre had the unique ability to be a chameleon on the court and adapt his strengths to the yep. opponent's weaknesses and there is no doubt he's going to bring uh, that type of of understanding of the game uh, to Coco and I think it's a brilliant move.
0: Yeah, actually. And your comment, by the way, about in some sense, the one more ball, um, it's totally on a totally different level of of sport. But it was one of the greatest coaches in squash, who was my son's coach, my middle son's Mm -hmm. coach, said the exact same comment that you said him one time. He said, you're always going to get another opportunity in a rally to hit a winning shot. You make Mm -hmm. too many errors to force it on this opportunity you're going to get another one. So it reminded me of when you were saying that, Craig, like there will be, like, it doesn't have to be one and done. Like there will be a second opportunity, a third opportunity, but not, of course, if you hit the ball out of bounds, not if you hit the ball into the net. And so that that kind of, that comment resonated with me as well.
1: Excellent. Yeah, I I love that analogy.
0: Well, let's go on to the men's side. So I don't even know what to say about that uh, Alcaraz-Djokovic match, except to say... Um, first, can you explain just the mental and physical side? I mean, I thought Djokovic was gonna have to retire in that match. So what enabled him to turn that match around both physically and mentally? And second, um, how close do you see the two of them and are they in a I'll use your language again, Craig, a floor by themselves?
1: Yeah, they certainly are at the moment. They, they reside together in the penthouse. They look over to the other building, and Iga's in the penthouse all on her own on the other side. But those two are almost dead equal with their abilities. Novak is still playing amazing tennis. Um, he, he's winning at, a, at the same rate or possibly even better than some of the best years of his career. Um, he's been pushed now. And, and part of that, you can give credit to Carlos for pushing him and being around to stimulate him to continue to improve. So those two guys are, are absolutely amazing and and on the floor um, of their own. In that match, Novak Novak hasn't been in that heat for a while. He hasn't been over to the States um, in a couple of years because of his stance with COVID. He hasn't felt that heat on a hard court. And it was actually very early in the match, in the first few games, that you could see that the heat was affecting him. Yep. So... So, he, you know, he hung around. He did the right thing. He called to the team to get, you know, the, the liquids and the salts and, and the electrolytes. Um, he had the trainer come out and give him extra. And he just hung around. And when you look to the other side of the court, Carlos didn't know how to handle that. He started making return error after return error. He made 38 return errors in that match. Um, Novak only made 18. And that really kept points short, which helped Novak. Um and, and it kept him in the match. And so all of a sudden, yes, he fell behind a set and a break. But Carlos's game fell apart because he didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to run him. He didn't know whether he should drop shot. Yep. Um, and, and the errors started falling. It was a little bit like, you know, in, in the uh, Roland Garros semifinal where he didn't know how to handle that situation. And you go back another year, I think, to Toronto where he played Tommy Paul and lost. Where Alcaraz was four in the world, he goes, I didn't know how to handle being four in the world. So, this is one of those things where quite probably Carlos learns from this and it doesn't happen again, but he just hadn't been in that situation before. And then he he ends up with a a match point, can't convert, sits down, absolutely frustrated, punches the daylights out of the seat next to him. I know it hurts his hand. Hurt his hand. I haven't seen him do that. So, that just kind of shows you. Um, you know, how frustrated he was for not closing that match out, and how kind of, we haven't seen it a lot with him, but winning kind of became the forefront thing in front of his eyes instead of the strategy, and that you know, we all go back to that, juniors especially, but, but that affected him there, and um and Novak gained strength from that, that, that he wasn't being put away by, by his opponent, Novak hung around and hung around, and his experience got him over the line there, so it was a fantastic match, and I think because of that, I'm going to in, in, install Novak as the favourite here at, um, at the US Open ahead of Carlos simply because of, of the confidence that uh, that Novak took away from coming back from the dead to win that match.
0: Well, I, so I was going to ask you about that and, and related to that. So you've written recently that there's a, I don't know, maybe it's the strategy part you're talking about, it, the inexperience part about Alcaraz having some sort of hole in his game. W- what do you think that hole is in Alcaraz's game?
1: Um, I, I, I do analysis of all of these matches. I, I create an 11-page match intelligence report. It's got a lot of different analytics than than you're getting regularly from the tournament, a lot on the 0-4 through four rally length. Um, and then obviously fights way to nine plus. You look at that, but, but very heavy on surplus one, return plus one, and rally links. And the hole in his game is on the return side. So I looked at um, nine, nine uh, tournaments that he played this year that he either went very deep semi finals or won. Uh, tournaments such as Wimbledon and Roland Garros and Cincinnati, also put in there Toronto, but you also go back to Indian Wells, Miami, Madrid, and Barcelona. Um, The return side of the equation, specifically returns made and returns won, at, at Toronto and Cincinnati, they were the lowest out of those nine. So Carlos is serving just fine. Everything's going well there. The rallying hasn't dropped off. But the return side's dropped off. And I looked at his return position against Novak, and especially on second serves, he's either way back, kind of like a Medvedev, or he's way in, almost doing like a sabre that Roger Federer um, you know, put together by half volleying and coming in. And I think that that massive discrepancy of being either 10 feet inside the baseline or almost 20 feet behind it is really messing up his timing and his confidence and his strategy uh, with the return of serve, particularly on the forehand side. The more he moves back, the more the ball dies, the slower it gets. And Carlos is kind of just cuffing up the back of that ball and making way too many return errors that are shanked off the bottom of his racket and sent long and sent wide and, and and not clean. When he's kind of standing in the one spot, he's got the same routine. He's hitting through the ball. He's an unbelievably clean hitter of the ball, but he's not doing it on the return of serve because of these drastic changes in his return position. So that's the hole in his game. Hopefully you read the uh, article too. I haven't seen... Juan Carlos Ferreira uh, here to pass it on to him. But um, as soon as he sorts that out, I think, I think he'll, 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 he can clean that up very, very quickly. But at the moment, Toronto and Cincinnati have been a nightmare for him in those two areas.
0: So I know we only have you for about two more minutes. So let me just ask you a couple of questions. The first question I want to ask you is you've already made your prediction that you make uh, Djokovic a slight favorite on the men's side. We always like to ask this question, but I think it's obvious what your answer is going to be. In this case, if I give you Djokovic and Alcaraz, and you give me the field, you would be happy with that. Um, What odds would I have to get for it to be a fair bet? Like, are you a two-to-one favorite over to me, three-to-one? Like, how much probability do you put in Djokovic and Alcaraz winning, or Alcaraz winning? Is it 75%, 80%? Where do you think you put it?
1: Uh, Higher. I'd put it higher.
0: Higher. Um,
1: I would go almost to 90% on those two guys. If you give me those two guys, I would feel unbelievably comfortable. Uh, by giving you the field, so yeah, maybe five, five to one, e- even higher. But I, I would say, you know, looking at it the other way, I would say, uh, you know, ninety uh, percent plus um, that 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 match is over. I would I would actually book a book a uh, flight this afternoon, New York to the Bahamas, um, settle in down there by the pool and watch the rest of the tournament by the pool, and and already start counting my money. Um, and 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 I, hopefully I cash it in in the following Sunday because I, I'd be pretty confident with that bet.
0: Yeah, you got. It. We have to, obviously have to hope injuries don't happen or something else very like true, that. Very Maybe true. just in the last thirty seconds we have you, sure. uh, Craig. Um, how do you see the women's side? Who, who's your prediction there?
1: Listen, I think Iga goes in. I, I you know I like how she's hitting the ball. She she won her first round here very very easily. Things are things are humming for her at the moment. Sabalenka could derail her with a with her speed, Pagula could derail her with a consistency. Rabakina could derail her with her first shot attacking Jaburg could derail her with the variety. Goff could also, you know, bring that hometown flavor, that, that American flavor. Um but I would take eager at the moment.
0: Well, Craig, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. We've been talking to Craig O'Shaughnessy. Uh, Craig is the founder of Brain Game Tennis. You can find more at www.braingametennis.com. He's recognized as one of the world's leader in teaching and analyze tennis strategy and analytics. Craig, thank you again for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball.
1: My pleasure. Cheers, Mike.
0: So this has been Wharton Moneyball on behalf of myself and my colleague, Adi Weiner. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Between now and next week, enjoy your sports, enjoy your analytics. We'll see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball.